Support for WPR comes from Rutabaga Paddle Sports, offering canoes, kayaks, and advice to experience solitude on Wisconsin waterways. With test paddling at 2620 Rimrock Road in Madison. Rutabagashop.com You're listening to Central Time. I'm Shereen Seward in for Rob Ferret. Now, as political debates over how to address PFAS in Wisconsin continue... We're taking a look at the health effects of these so-called forever chemicals, which can be present in drinking water, nonstick cookware, clothing, and more. Exposure to PFAS has known effects on many parts of the body, including the thyroid, the kidneys, and liver. Exposure to PFAS during infancy and childhood is associated with reduced immune function. Scientists are still trying to understand what other effects forever chemicals may have on human health, including how it may affect pregnancy, and the risk of developing breast cancer. We're talking about the risks PFAS pose to human health, and you can join in at 800-642-1234. What do you want to know about PFAS and human health? Are PFAS present in your drinking water where you live? What action do you want to see on this issue? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email us at ideas at wpr.org. Sue Fenton is the director of the North Carolina State University Center for Human Health and the Environment and the Research Translation Coordinator for the Superfund Research Program on PFAS in North Carolina. She specializes in reproductive endocrinology and received her BA, MS, and PhD from UW-Madison. Sue, welcome to Central Time. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Shereen. It's great to be here. What ways are scientists sure right now that PFAS affect human health? What do we know? Well, we do know that um, most people are have it in their blood um, and that there are very few who don't, mm-hmm. <laughs> unfortunately. We also know that there are many associations in human health to um, exposures that uh, they that people have had. And now we know that some of those exposures can be recapitulated in animal models or cell models where we've actually on purpose exposed those animal models or cell models to the PFAS of interest. Um, And we have seen similar health outcomes as as those that have been reported in in human populations. So So are we talking about things like Thyroid disease, cancers. Yeah, yes. So, so fatty liver is one thing um, that we have seen, and like metabolic disease, so obesity, um, um, increased liver disease in animal models and humans have been reported. Thyroid uh, effects are shown in most animal models now that have been tested with PFAS. And also some endocrine um, issues like um, mammary gland development, lactation, um, inability to lactate, I should say, Mm -hmm. um, has been shown in both people and rodent models, as well as small birth weight in um, the offspring or the infant. So tell us a little bit more about the, uh, the way that developing fetuses and infants can be affected by PFAS. Sure. So we know that in animals, the more the exposure increases, the worse the effect is. Um, and, and there are associations in humans like that also. So 
there are enough studies now that uh, mathematical modelers have shown that for a certain percent increase in PFAS, you can expect a certain decrease in infant size. We don't know exactly how that happens yet. We think there is um, involvement of the placenta during development. Um, so maybe um, the PFAS targets the placenta, but we really aren't sure exactly of the mechanism yet. A lot of people are working on that. One thing that caught my eye was seeing that PFAS could result in reduced response to vaccines in children. That took me by surprise. Why? Um, PFAS cause immune suppression. Um, and this is an interesting story because the antibodies that an infant are bo- is born with comes from the mom. So she transferred those antibodies to the baby through the placenta and through breast milk. And um, it's possible that it all starts in the womb. So it may be affecting the mom's immune system also, in addition to the infant or the child. Um, So they have less ability to raise a response to a vaccine. So you need these antibodies in your body to be able to respond to the vaccination um, so that you won't be affected by it. And this, this, this immune response um, is definitely affected by uh, PFAS, both in animal models and in humans. When we're talking about adults, uh, you know, why do PFAS affect our immune function? How does that work? Well, uh, there's about three different ways that it can do that. Um, I don't know that the full story is out yet. I don't know. that. So B cells and, and the immune response is actually affected. And there may be some effect um, at other various um, levels in the immune response. So I just know that there are three different ways, three different methods, <laughs> mechanisms, I guess. Sure. Um, that PFAS have affected the immune system. So it's not just a single thing that it affects. There, There's like multiple levels where you can have a negative impact by PFAS. So, I mean, that's important. And, and PFAS can affect multiple organs too. So it may affect a binding protein and uh, the way the cells mature or something like that. So there are definitely multiple ways that you can do that. Sue Fenton is the director of the NC State University Center for Human Health and, and, and the Environment and an expert on PFAS. Are you concerned about the health risks from your own exposure? Have you changed your water consumption habits as a result? Call us, 800-642-1234. Sue, how quickly is the science emerging here? I feel like we didn't know half of this stuff five years ago. Or is that, is uh, that just are, my perception? You are exactly right. Yes, you are exactly right. Things are moving incredibly quickly. Um, so in the last few years, I've been involved in writing uh, really big reviews on the health effects of PFAS. So I've published one of them with several other experts in the field um, in a journal. And then I was just recently involved in the PFAS report to Congress that kind of uh, characterized the effects, all of the known health effects of PFAS and the 
knowledge gaps. So now we're getting a little more specific about the knowledge gaps. You know, before it was like we didn't even know all the target tissues, but now we know the target tissues and we now we want to know how exactly the PFAS are affecting these tissues so that maybe we could have intervention. So the number of papers published on PFAS in the last five years has been exponential. <laughs> why why do you think that is? Yeah, why, that. I mean, why, why is that? Why is there kind of this new sense of urgency that didn't seem to really exist um, a few years ago? I think because the people in the White House are really paying attention to it. I mean, there's a real, there's a real urgent need to protect people in affected communities. And um, our elected officials are now calling for that. So there's money available for research that we did not have before. And there's a real concentrated um, effort to protect not only affected communities, but also military and civilian um, workers who work you know, with um, that put out fires at military bases and at airports with uh, aqueous film forming foams that may contain PFAS. So they have a quite an exposure also. Mm -hmm. What do we know about the relationship between PFAS exposure and COVID infection risk? Is there a correlation there uh, or don't we know yet? Uh, there are numerous studies ongoing right now um, there are some initial um, papers that ha that do show an association between uh, elevated PFAS exposure and more severe COVID um, outcomes mm -hmm. or um, side side effects, I guess. Um, but there are numerous studies ongoing now. I think we'll know more in about a year. Um, it takes a little while to gather all that information and then you know, analyze it and process it. But there are numerous people that I know who are working on that, out, on those outcomes. We have Janet on the phone from La Crosse. Uh, Janet, hi. Hello. Thanks Thank for calling. You for having me. Sure. Thank you. Um, so what, what would you like I, to know? Um, I just moved to the La Crosse area last February and I was very careful of selecting my home, but I wanted to live on French Island, which is where the airport is, and there's a big issue with PFAS. So, um, but when I moved in February, I signed up to get Culligan water, um, and I used that exclusively, not only for me, but for my dog as well, because we're only two people in the household. Mm -hmm. um, and listening to your show, I was hearing some of the concerns that, that um, interest me would be like the immune system. Um, I'm 68, so I'm not an infant, but I'm on the other end of the distribution curve mm -hmm. <laughs> where um, I can become more vulnerable to a lot of things. So the immune system and then my dog is on thyroid pills. Um, she came here with those, so this is not new, but... You know, the types of things that PFAS can um, impact, I'm finding very interesting to hear on your show because they're part of my life and part of the choice of where I chose to move to, knowing this, but thankful that the city is offering Culligan water, and I hope it 
doesn't come from the same source. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Janet. You know, that actually brings up a, a, a question. So I'm, I'm really wondering about the risk to household pets. Um, should we be worried about sure. that? Sure. Um, I, you know, if they're drinking the water, they have a little smaller blood volume. So their internal levels might actually get to higher levels than the adults living in the house. Um, because they def- it can definitely bioaccumulate. Some PFAS can definitely bioaccumulate in our pets also. Um, there's very little investigation in that area. I know there are a lot of people interested in it, but there's not very much funding for those types of studies. So unfortunately, we don't know a lot. But for all intents and purposes, yes, it could definitely accumulate in your dogs. But if you're wondering about your water, if your water says that it's purified by being either distilled or reverse osmosis distilled, there's a very good chance that it has very little PFAS in it. So you want to look for water, bottled water at least, that says it's purified by distillation. That will definitely help. Okay, good to know. We're talking about how PFAS affect human health with Sue Fenton. She is director of the NC State University Center for Human Health and the Environment and an expert on how PFAS affect pregnant people and developing fetuses. And we want to hear from you at 800-642-1234. Have you experienced negative health outcomes related to PFAS? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email us at ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Shereen Seward in for Rob Ferret. We're talking about how PFAS affect human health with Sue Fenton, director of the NC State University Center for Human Health and the Environment. We want to hear what you think, too, at 800-642-1234. What do you want to know about the health effects of PFAS? Call 800-642-1234 or email us at ideas at wpr.org. So we're going to go to the phone. We have Connie with us now from Pewaukee. Hi, Connie. Thanks for calling. Hello. I was wondering about absorption through the skin. The city is saying that it's safe to shower in the water. Unfortunately, my location, my home, I can't get like a whole house purification system. And I've seen studies that go both ways about it being able to be absorbed. So I'm interested in your input on that. Great question, Connie. What do you think? Yeah, so there all of the PFAS can that have been tested thus far have been shown to be able to be absorbed through the skin. However, the amount that you absorb is probably not going to be more than if you drank a, a glass of water. Um, you're going to absorb it more efficiently if you're eating or drinking it or even inhaling it. Um, so, yes, it can be absorbed, um, but that is going to be a little less than other routes of exposure for you. Also, um, if if your levels are really high, it, if you would have some irritation of your skin um, from at least from what's been published, um, that if it, if there was a high enough exposure to PFAS. Okay, thanks for answering that question. Sandy from Columbus called but couldn't stay with us. And Sandy's question, if PFAS in individual blood systems can contribute to a person's health outcomes with a COVID infection, couldn't PFAS also contribute to negative health outcomes after a spike protein vaccine? Well, 
Um, actually, some of the best data on, um, you know, for us to understand that PFAS cause immune suppression is in children after they got like tetanus or measles vaccines. They've actually measured them um, not being able to respond as well. They didn't have as much of a titer to the vaccination after after their um, vaccinations. So that's really where we under, understood that PFAS cause immune suppression and can um, affect your ability to um, mount a response to a vaccine. So there's a chance that there's, um, a, you know, that all vaccines um, could be less effective in people that have high PFAS exposures, but we don't have that answer yet. So I don't know the exact answer to her question, but you know, we do know that it's more, you know, there are multiple vaccines that this has happened with that they're less responsive. People are less responsive. Yeah, Sandy, that was it's a great question. Uh, yeah. Yeah, let's let's go to Stella from Sturgeon Bay. Hi, Stella. Thanks for calling. Hi. Um, I have a question. We have a four-filter um, reverse osmosis system, two pre and one post, and the reverse osmosis um, filter. We've used that for years, and um, we, our pets, our chickens, and the wild birds all get reverse. Any any living creature gets the RO water. My question is: Does RO does the reverse osmosis system remove the PFAS? Hmm. Do you know? Um, the, that yes, that is the only system that I know of so far that removes most all PFAS. So some of the granulated activated charcoal filters only remove some PFAS, but the reverse osmosis method um, removes nearly all of them. That's and great to completely. know. Yeah, that's great to mm-hmm. know. I, and a lot of people are are curious about those water purification systems. So that I'm so glad that Stella sure. asked that question. Uh, we have mm-hmm. Lee now with us calling from the town of Campbell. Hi, Lee. Thanks for calling. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So uh, just to tag on a little bit to the discussion about um, the filtration systems, because it's really important for people that live in communities that have known PFOS. Uh, Number one is most communities don't have a filter collection program. So if you know you have PFOS in your water uh, and it's being absorbed and you're throwing that spent highly concentrated contaminated filter in your trash. You have to worry about the waste stream. Um, But the other part um, of it is that, you know, it was mentioned earlier about uh, medical knowledge regarding PFAS. And um, it's very upsetting to me that both 3M and DuPont knew as early as the 1950s how toxic these chemicals were because they saw the results of that PFAS exposure in their employees. And now here we are 50 years later, plus 50 to 70 years later, still trying to catch up with the research. So I'm grateful that the government is investing in it. Those of us who live in PFAS contaminated communities um, definitely will benefit from that research. But, um, you know, once you've been drinking it your whole life and you're living with the health effects, um, it's hard to go back. Thanks a lot, Lee. I, I appreciate the call. Sue, what do you think about what Lee just said? Well, she hit the nail on the head. 
Um, it is, it, it is, uh, it's not something you can get out of your body very easily. And unfortunately, the best way to lower your levels is, to, is for women is to have a child and to breastfeed, um, mm-hmm. both of which, you know, are, mm-hmm. are wonderful things in your life. But unfortunately, it transfers it to the infant. And really, there's no other way. So, you know, yeah, she's totally right. I'm curious, how how long and at what levels does someone have to be exposed to to have these health risks? Does it vary from person to person? Is it a, a, Do you have to be, mm-hmm. you know, consume a lot of right. it or touch right. a lot of it? Right. And it, and it, yes, yes. And it, it depends on what you're exposed to. So if it's PFOA, PFOA or PFOS or mm-hmm. PFHXS or something larger than that, like PFNA, um, some of those accumulate um, quite dramatically in your body. There are some smaller chain things, things that were produced by 3M, that may not accumulate as much. So you could be exposed to them for a very long time and still have fairly low levels in your body. Um, so it depends on how much you've been exposed to, how long, and what you've been exposed to, and how many different PFAS you've been exposed to. So unfortunately, there's no straight answer to that, but... right. Um, they accumulate. Just in our last minute together, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources is proposing new regulations for PFAS, all uh, 20 parts per, per trillion for PFOA, PFOS, four, 450 parts per billion for PFBS. What do you think of those limits? Do they line up with what the science shows is safe? Well, uh, they, they're they a little higher than what the federal government is, is actually, so the U.S. EPA Office of Water is proposing levels that are lower than that for all of the ones that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they have used all of the most current science to develop the maximum contaminant limits that led to their decisions on how much to regulate these mm-hmm. chemicals at. So Wisconsin's uh, current uh, thought, um, I do think they have a very strong case. Okay. For the levels that they've developed. Sue, we're fading in and out here. I want to thank you for joining us. It's been a great discussion. Sue Fenton, the director of NC State University Center for Human Health and the Environment on today's Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Shereen Seward in for Rob Ferret. Now, Taylor Swift's Eras Tour has been taking the world by storm since March. Fans across the U.S. shelled out to see the singer-songwriter who hasn't done a stadium tour since 2018. Face value tickets ran from roughly $50 to $500, but resale tickets famously sold for thousands of dollars on platforms like StubHub. While Swifties aren't the only ones feeling the pocketbook pinch, ticket prices for live entertainment at events are up across the board from football games to theme park admissions. And travel costs are up, too, making it even more expensive to travel out of state for an amusement park or to see your your favorite band play live. Our next guest wrote a piece about this funflation phenomenon and how it's affecting the way Americans are, well, having fun. We want to hear from you, too, at 800-642-1234. Have the high costs of travel, theme parks, and concert tickets caused you to change your plans or scale back on recreation this year? When do you think it's worth it to save up and shell out for an expensive live performance or a big trip? 
Did you make it out to a major show or event this year? And did you think it was worth it or not? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Robbie Whelan is a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, where he covers the Walt Disney Company and the business of Hollywood. Robbie, welcome to Central Time. Thanks for having me, Shereen. A lot of analysts are talking about the rise of what they call the experience economy. So what is that exactly? And how does it play into the funflation phenomenon? Yeah, well, the experience economy is anything that you have to show up for in person. So that can mean anything from from a live concert to a sporting event, even going to a zoo or a um, or you know an off Broadway show. And um, these events have gotten really, really in demand over the last two years, um, to an extent that has really even surprised the people who put them on and. and the owners of these theme parks and and, uh, and and what that means is that demands to the roof, so prices are through the roof as well. Why do you think there is such a big appetite for live entertainment right now? What plays into that? There's a couple of factors that um, I've come across in my own reporting on this topic. One is that we had, you know, between a year and a half or three years, depending on where you lived in America, um, of, of really limited options during the pandemic. You were basically glued to your couch if you wanted entertainment. And um, we're still definitely in sort of the, the middle of that pent-up demand kind of unwinding. So for people who, who got really frustrated with not being able to go out and experience live entertainment and fun experiences with their friends and family because they were too worried about contracting COVID or, or spreading COVID, um, those folks are out there en masse enjoying themselves. That's one thing. Another thing is just kind of the, the nature of the entertainment business, which has been that there's a lot of competition. Um, uh, there's, there's more streaming services available than I can count on both hands. And, uh, you know, a lot of the media companies that sort of produce the entertainment that we consume every day have, have really shifted to this mode where they're just they're, they're investing a lot of money and a lot of effort in producing content for streaming. And when what you've got is kind of uh, this, this race to sort of arm up with as much content as possible, um, sometimes it's not very good. Sometimes people get tired of seeing the same sorts of shows over and over again, and they start looking for something new. And I think that a lot of American consumers have found that in, in the return of live entertainment. You cover Disney for the Wall Street Journal. Have their prices gone up at their parks? Yeah, Disney, I think, is on their third or fourth round of ticket price increases in the last year and a half. But um, when you look at the numbers on tickets, some of them are kind of eye-popping. I think we've got close to $200 a day on peak days for a single-day pass to Walt Disney World in Orlando, which is which is uh, sort of startling when you think about the fact that five or six years ago it was closer to 100 um, But more important than, I think, the sticker shock of the ticket prices is that Disney – and a few of its competitors in the theme park business have have added all these add-ons, usually in the form of smartphone apps that kind of have become essential to enjoying your day at a Disney theme park. And what I mean by that is there's something called Genie Plus. There's another thing called Individual Lightning Lane. And these are tools that, you know, visitors to a theme park um, get to, to, to help them, you know, wait in a shorter line to get on their favorite ride or to skip a line altogether and it's gotten to the point at a lot of these places where I have two small kids. When I go to Disney, I feel like I spend, you know, I go to Disneyland, I feel like I spend most of the day waiting in line. And it's sort of, if I didn't have these tools, 
um, which costs an extra 10 or 20 or sometimes even as high as 30 or $40 for individual lightning lane. If I didn't have them, my day would be really lousy. Um, and so in order to have a really great time at these parks, you kind of need to shell out for more, for more additional items. And that's on top of the rising prices for plane tickets to get to the parks, hotels to stay at at the end of the day, uh, food that's sold inside the parks, at the parks as well, which are also just sort of a victim of generalized inflation pressure. Have those higher prices and add-ons affected attendance, or are people still going? People are still going, as far as we know. And, um, you know, there has been some well, – well, that's a complicated question, because during the pandemic, almost every theme park saw an attendance fall to zero for a certain period of time. Since they've reopened, um, we've seen – fewer, you know, thinner crowds in general, you know, capacity is not being reached as often as it once was, but that's kind of by design. I think a lot of theme park operators, especially Disney, have realized that um, if you sort of limit the number of people, you know, limit the size of the crowds and people have a better time and they're, and they're more willing to kind of uh, purchase, make in-park purchases, that, which are really kind of the bread and butter of, of that business and how it works. However, we have seen that um, in, um, over the summer during peak season at Walt Disney World, which is to say around July 4th weekend, crowds had really thinned out um, in a way that was unexpected. So we are seeing some sticker shock affecting it. But um, in general, I would say theme park crowds are, are, are down and, and thinner by design. Wall Street Journal reporter Robbie Whalen is our guest today to talk about inflation. The number to call to join in is 800-632-1234. What are we seeing with live sports when it comes to this? Live sports um, are, are getting more expensive. But on that side of things, my impression is that um, that's one of these businesses where where the cost of fun is rising because the secondary market has really um, grown like crazy. And I, I, we look at things like uh, I'm a I'm a season ticket holder here in Los Angeles with uh, the uh, the LAFC MLS soccer team, and we saw phenomenons you know phenomena like like Messi Leo Messi joining the um, Inter Miami team, which was a huge jolt to that franchise. But also what it meant was suddenly every every time that team played somewhere, um, ticket prices you know accelerated and they rose really fast because people just simply wanted to see Leo Messi play for his regular team in the U.S. for the first time. So, so and what that meant was, obviously, the, the, the teams couldn't raise prices just because they had Messi coming to town, but the secondary market um, um, certainly could. And so we saw tickets going for thousands of dollars apiece. And, um, and, but in general, the trend in, in sports is just a um, higher portion of people's wallets being spent on, on sporting events and, and ticket prices creeping up at a fairly fast pace. Robbie Willen is a reporter at the Wall Street Journal where he covers the Walt Disney Company and the business of Hollywood. He's here with us to talk about his latest piece on funflation and why live entertainment is getting so expensive. We want to hear what you think at 800-642-1234. Are you one of the 60% of Americans who are cutting back on entertainment spending lately? And when it's time to cut back, what are the first things to go for you? What activities stay in the budget no matter what? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll pick up the conversation coming up next on Central Time. 
listening to Central Time. I'm Shireen Seward in for Rob Ferret. We continue our talk with Wall Street Journal reporter Robbie Whelan about funflation and what we're seeing now that live entertainment costs are up. You can join in 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Tom is on the phone with us from Madison. Hi, Tom. Thanks for calling. Good afternoon. Um, certainly, uh, all of these junk fees that are out there in uh, many, many industries are a certain call for a lot of regulation to come about. But um, last summer, my girlfriend and I took a delayed trip uh, due to COVID to Alaska, and we enjoyed ourselves uh, a great deal. It was more than we expected. Um, but um, I'd go back, but we have cut a lot of live music. And the main reason for that is Ticketmaster with all of their legion of fees upon fees upon fees. And I've really decided that even if it's the second coming of Jesus Christ, if Ticketmaster is involved, I'm not going to be there. Tom, thank you for calling. I, um, I'm i sorry to laugh. That that just made me laugh, though. Robbie, what do you think about what Tom said? <laughs> Thanks for your, for your comments, Tom. I'm sorry that it's gotten so hard for you to afford uh, you know, the fees on those tickets. I, I would say that, yeah, junk fees are a very big um, issue in the entertainment world right now, and there's a lot of backlash and certainly the sort of dearth of competition in the in the ticket pricing services and, and sorry distribution services for tickets is a part of that equation but i would say that even before you get to the level of paying a fee you know a ticket fee or whatever kind of fee they come up with to tack on to your price um you know the price of a live concert ticket um in the last year rose to about 120 dollars um which i think was about 17 percent higher than the previous year there's just a incredible embarrassment of riches in the in the entertainment world there's these global acts everything from k-pop to to latin trap of bad bunny the highest selling concert tour of the last year to beyonce and taylor swift and it kind of just you know it, it goes it sort of trickles down from there and when you have these kind of like huge spectacles touring the country pretty much constantly um you know it costs a lot to put on those tours and, and the demand for a one-of-a-kind tour experience is just so high right now, and it's hard to see how it comes down. I mean, as long as, in other words, as long as the crowds keep on coming, the ticket prices will remain high or even get higher. And um, when you add the fees into the equation, I can see why, why uh, you, you're, so, you're so turned off by the prospect of seeing Jesus in concert. <laughs> Well, you know that. I mean, of course, if if the tickets are expensive and people are paying it, there's, they're not going to voluntarily go. Well, I think I'll make them cheaper now, right? So, I mean, that's that's a really good point. Let's go to Jeff in Superior. Jeff is with us now. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for calling. Hi. Good afternoon. In the past twenty years, my favorite thing to do is go to the Breeders' Cup. It's actually coming to Santa Anita the first weekend in November, and you can go to horse racing. There are quite a few venues in the United States. Where often you can get in for free or three, four, five dollars. They give you a program, and you can win more money than you arrived with. I I went to New York five years ago and I won three grand. Well, I mean, I, that's that's something. So I mean, there are some some definitely affordable things, right? I mean, what do you think? 
Jeff, that's a good point. And um, it's actually interesting to me that you point out an activity that's centered on gambling, because if you look at um, in other parts of Disney's business, for example, um, they just announced a few months ago that ESPN, which is generally understood to be you know, the TV, the sports network that Disney owns, and is generally understood to be in decline as more people cancel every year their, their cable TV packages, they've just recently announced they're making a big investment in online sports betting and partnering with a, uh, with a uh, sports book called Penn Entertainment to sort of draw in more fans, especially younger male fans, who have come to see sports betting as an essential part of the sports viewing experience. So it's interesting to me that one of the things you like to do is go is go to a you know a, a horse racing event and and bet on the ponies there, and it's a good point. If you think about Vegas when you go and um, you win a lot at the craps table and you might get a coupon all of a sudden to to go see Celine Dion that night for free or whatever it is, whatever it is to keep you there spending money whatever it takes to keep you there, spending money on betting and making wagers, that is one of the strategies that media and entertainment companies have adopted, you know, really in full force in the last couple of years to kind of offset the, um, the, the, the numbers of consumers that they're seeing who are scared off by high prices. Yeah. Sullivan called from Green Bay. Hi, Sullivan. Thanks for, for uh, phoning in. Hi. So, yeah, um, Within the last like year or two, I've actually gotten into a LARP events, you know, like live action role playing, and there have been a couple events in the nation that are that have like just started popping up within the last like two or three years uh, that have uh, be, uh, been really affordable, like for entry level stuff, on top of other things that are not nearly as great of value. You know, I, I, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, some, some, there is some affordable stuff out there. And, and I want to bring up a couple of comments that, that some uh, people left for us on Facebook. Jacqueline on Shereen, Facebook. Can I, I ask real quick if I could interject? Oh, yeah. um, if the caller's still on the line, what kind of LARPing events are we talking about? What sort of, uh, is it Star Wars LARPing? Is it Renaissance Fair stuff? Yeah, so this is more like medieval Lord of the Rings, very, very low magic fantasy. Or you like Game of Thrones type stuff? Got it. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I that's a, that's a really interesting point as well. I mean, I think a lot of people kind of when they're seeking live entertainment, one affordable option is to entertain yourself, and um, you know whether that's getting together with friends to play music and have a jam session versus what you're doing and, and uh, live action role playing. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. Thanks for calling Sullivan. I appreciate that and bringing that up. Um, Jacqueline on Facebook made me laugh, uh, wrote, I can't even afford a vacation to McDonald's Playland. <laughs> David on Facebook agreed. He said it's it's been too expensive. I think a lot of people can relate to that. I mean, in, in the last minute that we have together, are we are we seeing rising prices even on activities that used to be considered affordable? We definitely are. Um, I spoke to the CEO of the San Diego Zoo and Wildlife Park, which is uh, – which is, you know, one of the more famous zoos in the in the country. It's also a nonprofit, and even there, we're seeing a massive, uh, not massive, but we're seeing a steady creep up in ticket prices. And one interesting thing that he told me was that in in the face of rising prices, what they're noticing is more people becoming members of the park, which is to say, sort of more closely tying their identities and 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 speaking for more of their free recreation time by going to the same place over and over again, which I think is a trend we're going to see a lot of in the future. You know, if there's something you like to do, it's try to find a way to get an annual pass or a membership. Um, but, but yeah, it's definitely true that even, even something like a nonprofit zoo 
is uh, is seeing is seeing the effects of this uh, increased demand. Robbie, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and talking about this with us. Thank you very much, Shireen. It was a pleasure. That's Robbie Whelan, Wall Street Journal reporter who covers the Walt Disney Company and the business of Hollywood. We've been talking about the rising costs of entertainment and how Americans have been responding to this so-called funflation. Wisconsin businesses are working to learn as much as they can about artificial intelligence. The technology went mainstream last November with the launch of ChatGPT, and it feels like manufacturing and healthcare it could have a big impact. Joe Schultz has more on what AI could mean for the state's workforce. On the factory floor of KI's Green Bay plant, a robotic arm grabs metal pieces from another machine and drops them into a pile. Like many manufacturers, KI has been using robotics in its processes for years. Alex Peters is the automation engineering manager for the company, which makes furniture for offices and schools. And when he thinks about artificial intelligence, he sees lots of potential. The way that I would enhance a cell with AI is I would use AI to just monitor the production output of this system. Then AI could determine whether this robot's at capacity, if there's spare capacity. It's Peter's job to plan how the company will use new technologies to make the plant safer and more productive. And AI's been on his mind a lot lately. For our automated systems on the plant floor, I could see AI being a powerful tool. While Peters and others see opportunities for the technology, one of Wisconsin's largest industries may not be ready for it. A survey of over 400 manufacturing executives found that only 26% were either using or considering AI, and over half say it's not going to have much of an impact on their business. Buckley Brinkman is a Wisconsin manufacturing consultant. At a recent event in Green Bay, he said companies are underestimating the technology's impact. I mean, we're pretty, we're pretty desensitized to technology that we introduce on the plant floor and eliminates jobs or changes the nature of those jobs. We're not so desensitized when all of a sudden you're a knowledge worker and two-thirds of your job can be done by an algorithm. The healthcare industry is already using AI to diagnose diseases and predict effective treatments. That's according to Missy Hughes with the Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation. She points to work being done by the Medical College of Wisconsin as an example. They are using AI to predict and more successfully treat pancreatic cancer, which is one of the deadliest cancers that there is, and they're seeing results using AI. Of course, we're still a long way from having AI replace doctors, but it is being incorporated by industries across the state. Kathy Henrich is with the Milwaukee Tech Hub Coalition. She studied AI and the changing nature of work in graduate school. She says the technology likely won't fully replace humans, but... You're going to augment those uniquely human capabilities with AI. And so those people that can successfully apply AI into their jobs and utilize it are going to be the most productive. Henrich says businesses need to think about how to retrain their workforce to understand AI's capabilities. Earlier uses of robotics in manufacturing led to worry that factories would use the technology to cut jobs. While that happened in some cases, it also changed the types of jobs available. Right now, many Wisconsin businesses are struggling to hire enough workers. Kurt Bauer of Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce says that's a sign AI probably won't displace many workers. When I talk to my manufacturers who are investing in robotics and AI, if it displaces a worker, they reassign them because there's a workforce shortage. 
That's Jake Rohr of the consulting firm Whipley. In September, he presented to Northeast Wisconsin manufacturing officials. He focused on generative AI, like ChatGPT. It's a form of machine learning that uses data to produce text, video, images, and other content. Right now, Rohr says it's being used broadly, but that could change. Just because there's probably not going to be one tool that everybody uses. Artificial intelligence certainly poses risks. The technology is already being used to write spam emails or to create realistic fake videos known as deepfakes. Despite the risks, many business leaders say the changes AI will make to Wisconsin's workplaces are just beginning to be understood. Joe Schultz, Wisconsin Public Radio. Coming up tomorrow on Central Time, it's Food Friday with a look at the kitchen gadgets that every cook needs. We'll also hear what to expect in Washington now that a new speaker has finally been elected to the House. And spooky insects, which creepy crawly pests are you sharing your home with? That's coming up tomorrow here on Central Time.